Hello and welcome back to the show. This is the Dustcast, the podcast dedicated to exploring the ancient context of the Bible. Today I have an interview with Randy Harris. Randy is an author and a professor at Abilene Christian University. He was one of my philosophy professors back when I was at ACU. And today we talk about the spiritual disciplines, the Bible having a conversation with itself, and what was wrong with Plato. So I hope you enjoy. Thanks for joining. So I, I, uh, I thought we could start with sort of some philosophy stuff. Okay. <laughs> because I, I feel like that's sort of where my journey on this started, actually. I know I, I never actually had any of your Bible classes. I think the okay. only classes we had together were philosophy classes. All right. And um, I, my podcast is sort of focused on a more culturally informed reading of the scriptures or, you know, looking at the ancient worldview, ancient ancient context. Right. And I trace my interest in that back to a conversation that we had, and I don't remember what we were really talking about per se. I just remember you made the comment that our modern Western conception of the body and soul mm-hmm. is more seems more platonic than biblical. Right. Which I had never heard before, which I don't know why. I guess we just our culture is so steeped in that. We don't step back and think about it that often. But um, that intrigued me, and I didn't really know what to do with it because I didn't know how to learn much more about the ancient worldview at the time. You know, I thought I could find something on like Jewish philosophy, which really doesn't exist per se in, right. in, in that form. <laughs> right. uh, um, but years, years later, when I I finally started um, kind of researching the ancient worldview a bit more, and and then actually took a couple trips to Israel, it really reawakened my passion for, I don't know if I should say theology or, or Bible study or what, but, um, you know, I, I suppose I'd gotten, I don't know, bored is the right word, but somewhat bored with systematic theology and apologetics and the way that we tend to do some of that stuff in the Western world. Mm-hmm. And so that, that more grounded in the ancient worldview context um, really seemed to open the scriptures to me in a new way. So anyway, I, I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about Platonism because I do still think that that influences Western world thought so much. And, um, you know, I've heard you talk a little bit about some of the ways that you think Plato was wrong and it influences our theology. So I don't know. Do you see that as um, still a problem for how we think about things in the Western church? Yeah. You know, the in a lot of ways, the Platonic stuff came into Christianity through Augustine who's still the biggest star, <laughs> you know, in the theological firmament, probably in the history of Christianity. So Augustine read Plotinus, who was a leading interpreter of Platonus. He also read Porphyry, who was Plotinus' student. And he was working his way out of Manichaeism, uh, which is a kind of a combination of Christianity and Eastern uh, religion that was very dualistic in terms of uh, soul body and um, Augustine was in the Manichees for nine years uh, before he finally worked his way out of it and he largely worked his way out of it through Neoplatonism uh, that is through Plotinus and there's always a big debate about how how platonic Augustine's thought is, but it's pretty platonic. <laughs> and so, you know, I think there's a couple of problems. Uh, I think it tends to 
uh, at least in the Western world, it's tended to go Gnostic, uh, which is to say it dis, um, uh, it disses the body. Um, you know, that embodiment is a problem uh, and that the, the soul needs to escape the body. And these are, these are kind of platonic, uh, notions. And so, um, I think that is a problem. That's a problem for the, the basic doctrine of incarnation, uh, for one, uh, where you have this kind of radical separation of soul and spiritual things from uh, earthly, uh, matter things. Um, I think it also, uh, Plato winds up overestimating, uh, intellect to, uh, to everything else. And, you know, I think one of the interesting things is if, if Plato were right and people had a serious brain injury t- today to those parts of the brain that primarily affected emotions, then from Plato's point of view, they should be the best decision maker in the world because now we got all that emotion stuff, you know, out of the way and we can, we can be pure reason. But now that we can study that stuff, neuropsychology, what we find out is if those emotional centers are injured, people can't make the simplest decision. And they can't decide whether to go to a restaurant and if so, what to order. And it turns out that those emotions are absolutely crucial to making any kind of decisions, which is kind of points against Plato's um, kind of over-intellectualism. So... Um, and of course, in Augustine's case, which becomes very influential in Christianity, it also uh, becomes a, a great suspicion of sex. And uh, play, uh, Augustine did make a commitment to celibacy. Um, he thought sex was a, at the very least distracting uh, from spiritual pursuit. So you have this kind of downplay of embodiment. You have this suspicion of sex. You have this overestimation of the intellect. You have the notion that what the soul really needs to do is escape the body. And so you get a kind of I'll fly away eschatology. And all of that is, is in my opinion, more platonic than Christian, where you have a much stronger affirmation of the body. You have affirmation of incarnation. You have resurrection of the body rather than immortality of the soul. And of course, the person who's written most convincingly about that recently, I suppose, is N.T. Wright, who's, who's argued pretty strongly that that makes a lot of things go wrong if um, you have an overly platonized view of reality. Does that get some of the stuff you're interested in? Yeah, yeah, it does a lot. Um, actually, my my eight-year-old has been asking about getting baptized, and so we've been talking a lot about just kind of the, the big story of the Bible. And mm-hmm. the other day, my five-year-old popped up from coloring and told my wife, um, one day God is going to bring his heaven to earth, and won't that be cool? We'll get to meet him. And she said, where did you learn that from? And he said, from Revelation. And I thought it was funny because I'd just been talking to my older son about that, and my five-year-old had kind of curled up next to us, but I didn't know how much he was paying attention yeah. Um, but it's, it's neat to hear that coming back from him because, um, you, you do still, still hear a lot. And actually my, my older son has picked this up from a number of his friends that God is going to pull our souls away eschatology, right? right? They're just right. purely disembodied and let's burn the earth because it doesn't matter as long as our souls get pulled away to heaven somewhere else kind of eschatology. Mm. Um, and yeah, that doesn't doesn't resonate with me as much anymore with what I, I think I see in scripture. Um, and yeah. so that, 
and uh, Jewish thought is not really my 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 area of expertise. I'm, I'm more comfortable in philosophy, but I, you know, you have a much more kind of holistic view of human be- beings in the Hebrew Bible. It seems to me that uh, we we can't be reduced to strictly physicalist terms. But the notion of some soul without a body is just kind of not there. It, you know, it, you're, you're kind of human beings are sort of a package deal here, uh, which is also embedded, I think, in the creation story as well. So, um, you know, August, Augustine worked his way around to a pretty powerful incarnational uh, theology. But, you know, I guess you could have a debate about how. How how much Platonism uh, continues to exert its influence on me, but I think what's kind of undeniable is as Augustine influenced the rest of the church uh, through the centuries, um, that that influence has been a mixed blessing. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. I think the other way that I've been wrestling with this a lot lately is that perspective that you just talked about a little bit. I think with the you know if you have a, a brain injury to your emotional side sort of concept that we can think our way into right behavior. Right. And that's really been the way I think the church in the West for a long time is focused on morality and ethics is just we have to have really good theology and doctrine. And then if we just think about it really hard, we can kind of think our way into being good people. And that hasn't worked out so well for us. It, it hasn't. And you're probably familiar with uh, my colleague uh, Richard Beck's work. Yeah where we we have this kind of we have an emotionally negative reaction to that which is other different from us yeah. and it is a non-rational reaction and since it is you really can't preach your way out of that you actually have to practice your way yeah. uh, out of that and so the, the notion that by knowing what's right you can do what's right eh, that doesn't that doesn't seem to be holding up very well yeah. in modern psychological study yeah we just we actually just worked through richard beck's book unclean in my sunday morning bible class so that was fun um yeah it's good stuff but he is very academic so we had to work hard or i had to work hard i guess (laughs) on trying to bring it down to a a more practical level for that type of setting right um and and then actually i think what we're going to do next is a, a study on spiritual disciplines and um what I would like to do is, is take a more communal or corporate angle on it. And this actually stems out of a, a, an interview I did a couple episodes ago on the podcast, uh, talking to Dr. Tim Gombus about an article he wrote on the new perspective on Paul. And he makes the argument that um, the church collectively or the, the church body is also the object through which God works the process of sanctification. So not, right. not just that we can think of election in sort of, corporate terms, but sanctification as well. And somehow I had never really thought of it that way before. Um, Mm. The actual process of sanctification having a really significantly corporate element. And I think a lot of the spiritual disciplines we we focus on, at least what comes first to mind for me, are the more individualistic ones of, I will go off and pray by myself. I will study the Bible by myself. And I think those are really important. But I, I feel like I need to put more effort into thinking through what the church body or a group, any group looking for spiritual formation would do collectively together to kind of open themselves to the spirit's work of sanctification. 
Yeah, yeah, I think there'd be two things there. One would be that it's very hard to do what we think of even as individual disciplines without some sort of communal support of them. Uh, so, you know, do you have a community? I mean, this is what the whole monastic thing is built around, is you have a community supporting these these disciplines. So that's one side of it. And then the other side of it is uh, how is the community itself formed? Uh and, you know, in some ways, this goes back to, to in modern times, to Marxist notions that you don't have human beings who then come into community. The human nature itself is formed by the communities that we're in. And so how do those communities function as formative uh, places, which I think is a very provocative, you know, sort of stuff. Um one of, my, one of my colleagues talks about, you know, that famous passage in Paul about, you, you know, you being the temple of the Holy Spirit. And most of those yous are plural. You know, it's, it's, it's talking to the congregation. And that when you go to see a prostitute, it's like you're taking the whole church with you. Mm-hmm. Um, which, okay, that now we're thinking about it at an entirely different level. That's a form of corporate solidarity. That's pretty hard in our Western uh, world, um, and and so the the whole notion of how the community is formed and then forms individuals, I think, are really interesting theological questions. Yeah, I think um, in English it can be easy for us to miss those plural use because we don't really have a word for it unless you go with kind of the Texas standard version and insert a y'all there. Y'all. Yeah, yeah. Y'all are the body of Christ and so forth. Right. Um, okay, well, let, so one other thing I wanted to ask you about while I've got you, because um, I, I heard you talk about this on, I think it was maybe an ACU Bible lecture that, that was recorded, but um, talking about the Bible not being univocal. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something many of us are probably not all that accustomed to thinking about in the past either, because, I mean, we probably had some study where we've learned about the importance of the author and kind of what is the perspective and life situation of the author. But we largely just say, well, it's the word of God. It's God's voice. Um, And yet scripture is really deep and really complex and it does present different perspectives. So I guess my question would be, how have you learned to see that? Yeah, I think it it does appear to me that scripture is among other things uh having a conversation with itself okay so one of the most obvious places to see it is over the discussion about whether israel should have a king so you get to the end of judges and uh you know there's chaos in the land because everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes and there was no king in israel Okay, that's one side of it. The place has fallen apart. We desperately need a king here uh, to prevent social prevent social disintegration. But then you have those passages that clearly says, well, Israel can't have a king because Israel already has a king. God is its king. How can Israel have a king when God is its king? And you can actually witness this conversation going on in the text over the very weighty theological problem of how can Israel have a king when God is its king? Uh, and the, the text is clearly uh, talking uh, to itself. And I, I think, you know, that's that's true in a, a lot of different places. Uh, and uh, I, I think of it as a theological or hermeneutic uh, spiral as opposed to a circle. 
So you read the Bible and the centers of gravity become more and more obvious to you. And we might call that center of gravity of scripture gospel. And as gospel emerges, that becomes the lens through which you read the Bible again. And that makes more gospel emerge. And so more and more gospels continuing to emerge. And then you're using that gospel as your lens uh, through which to view uh, scripture. And I, I think most people would agree that not everything in scripture is equally gospel. Uh, the gospel emerges out of, uh, out of the scripture and that, uh, that those become the kind of primary center of gravity, uh, places that we use to interpret, uh, the harder places. So, for instance, uh, the, one of the more difficult things for us to interpret are the, uh, genocides in the Hebrew Bible. Well, uh, how are you going to interpret those in light of Jesus' command to love your enemies? And so you've got texts that are actually sort of in this conversation with each other, and you have to decide which one is primarily gospel and how do you interpret one in light of in light of the other, and which one is going to be primary and which one's going to be secondary. And I don't I don't see how that's avoidable. Uh, you know, if you're a careful attentive reader of scripture it seems to me that it, it becomes obvious that uh, there's more than one voice speaking through scripture so i was hoping you were going to give me a nice clear solution to the genocide text what, what do we do then yeah. with the, <laughs> the verses that seem um maybe at best secondary to the gospel yeah i think well i think that maybe that's the way to say it is those those aren't necessarily the last word of god uh on the topic and whatever we do with those texts we have to uh interpret them in in light of other texts that may take a uh a different point of view um you know within a lot of uh, uh churches today this this would Come most obvious on on the issue of, of say the women's role uh, in the church. Uh, you have Paul saying in at least a couple of different passages that he won't permit a woman to speak apparently in the assembly, and you also have Paul saying in Christ there's neither male uh, nor female, and somehow those those texts have to be brought into conversation uh, with each other. Is there? If there's a spiritual equality, how do you explain the difference in role, that kind of thing? Uh, so there's, there is no formula for that. You know, there's no easy way, uh, to do that. Uh, I think the one wrong way to do it is to deny that that conversation is going on. You know, that conversation is going on in, in scriptures. And I'd, I'd rather start out with the scriptures themselves than I would some theory about them. Uh, and and be honest with the passages that are there rather than start out with a theory that doesn't allow some of the passages to say what they do. Yeah. Yeah, within 1 Corinthians, Paul seems to say both that women should be quiet and that they will prophesy and pray out loud in the assembly. So uh, there seems to be a, a bit of a conversation going on even within there. Absolutely, within a couple of chapters. And <laughs> right. What we call the principle of charity when we're interpreting scripture, it, it really is very simple. The principle of charity says the writer's not an idiot. Uh, and so there is a sense, there's some sense in which this makes sense. It made, at least it made sense to Paul. And then what we do is see, okay, what, how, how did this make sense to him? What, what, what's the difference in, in context or nuance here that, 
because there's clearly this conversation going on. We're coming into the middle of a conversation uh, about this, and uh, I think we get different sides of it in Scripture. Yeah. Well, so you, you talked a lot about the center of gravity in Scripture, and I've heard you say before that you tend to find the center of gravity in Scripture in the Sermon on the Mount. How, um, how did you come to view the Sermon on the Mount so centrally? I think there are, are a couple of things. Uh, certainly, Jesus said, well, I, I think the Christocentricity uh, is, to me, is a given. I, I know it's not a given for everybody, but saying, okay, okay, Jesus is somehow the center, and you have to interpret everything through the lens of Christocentricity or even through cruciformity, the, the story of a crucified Messiah. Uh, then it would be another step to say, okay, as Jesus teaches us about kingdom living, the Sermon on the Mount has a particularly important place. And, uh, you know, you could certainly argue that from the tradition of the church, uh, that they, they've always tended to lean towards the importance of uh, the Sermon on the Mount. In more recent days, uh, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer basically said, you know, in, in the midst of the rise of Nazism, what we need is a new monasticism. And the only thing the new monasticism is going to have in common with the old monasticism is its commitment to the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, one of the things I like about it, because I teach, you know, 18-year-olds, is uh, the Sermon on the Mount is a body of text you can get your arms around. I actually make my freshmen memorize it, all three chapters. And uh, they can't mem memorize 28 chapters of Matthew, but they can memorize those three. And uh, that can become a kind of lens uh, through through which you interpret uh, the world. So, you know, if somebody wants to argue that there are texts in Paul that are as primary as, as those in the Gospels, I, I, I wouldn't be inclined to debate that. Or that there are other Gospel texts as important as the Sermon on the Mount, I wouldn't be inclined to debate that uh, either. But uh, these have... The Sermon on the Mount has traditionally had a really important place in in the church's understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And uh, I have found it, as I've tried to live into it, very compelling that, okay, this uh, this helps sort a lot of things out. Yeah, it, it certainly is something that you can chew on for a long time. Um, I, I like the idea of having people memorize it because it really forces you to go over it over and over again. Um, I, I've taught on it a couple of times and still feel like I've sort of barely scratched the surface of what's probably there. And uh, and while it is deep and profound, it's also shockingly uh, practical. Mm. You know, it 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 really is a way that you can live in the world. And I think I think that's what Jesus is sort of after here. OK, what, what does it mean to be a member of kingdom of God in the midst of this world? And I think uh, Sermon on the Mount is one of the ways he starts uh, to lay that out. And uh, I don't I don't think he's laying himself over against Moses. I think he is laying his interpretation of the of the Mosaic law over against other sorts of interpretation, uh, Pharisaical, for instance. Um, so I don't think it's Jesus versus Moses. Um, I, I think he's saying, oh, okay, let me tell you what Moses was really about in Torah. Mm. Well, so I want to maybe try to pull a couple of things together that, that I think we've talked about so far, because um, we've talked about Sermon on the Mount. We talked about um, this idea of group sanctification and the necessity of a support group. Um, as we do spiritual disciplines. 
I, I know you have been involved in some groups of people at ACU committing to do life together and kind of creating a rule of life. Um, what advice would you have for those of us that are maybe in large cities, go to a church with people that live dispersed, we're dealing with the busyness of modern family life and all of that. How do we, how do we do a better job of finding communities with depth and really committing to um, spiritual formation together? Yeah, Mark, Mark Scandrett in uh, one of his books uses a term that I, I really like. He talks about the Jesus dojo. Uh, he says you don't learn to um, to do martial arts by reading a book about martial arts. You learn to do martial arts by practicing. And uh, I think the same thing about being a follower of Jesus. Uh, until you start engaging in some practices, it's all theory. You don't know if any of it's true. And so what I think we need are communities of practice. We need people who will covenant together to try things. Um, in my case, I, I have a group of students who, you know, agree to try to live out the Sermon on the Mount in certain ways. And so we have a rule of life we live by, but we have certain challenges a couple of times a month of, okay, let's try to live into this particular aspect of the Sermon on the Mount in these ways. And I think when you get people start agreeing to do that, then you start to see some actual, uh, spiritual growth. I think what went wrong with my, interaction, for instance, with mentoring groups for years, it was all from the neck up and it never did get embodied, which is in some ways kind of what we were talking about here in several different ways. Uh, how, how does this life uh, get embodied and get embodied in communities? And so what I would recommend that people do is find other like-minded people and covenant together to do life in a certain way. Not to just study it endlessly, but put some things into practice and then come back and say, what did we learn by, by what we practiced? Uh, in some ways, it's like, it's like playing chess. You can only get so good reading books about chess. At some point, you've got to play. And, um, and uh, that, that's what we need, our, our communities of practice to start to find out if any of this is true or not. Mm, yeah, that's good. Would you... See that as essentially the same as um, discipleship or in, in in terms of how you think we should attempt to do discipleship as a, as a church. Um, I think I've heard you say before that uh, you need to know who your 12 are, you know, like pick yeah. a, a small group of people to really invest in. Um, I, I tend to think of that type of discipleship as having more of a mentor mentee type of thing that somebody with perhaps a bit more life experience is pouring into somebody with less but i don't know so is that a different thing or is this kind of just community of like-minded people covenanting together the same thing no i think i think they're very much the same thing i do think um that's that sometimes because of the discrepancy of experience and maturity that will start to look more like an apprentice relationship, which I think is a really good thing. Um, I want to apprentice myself to people who have greater depth and experience with this. And I want to be willing to apprentice those who have who have less uh, experience. And uh, so I think I think they're different maybe kind of a different emphasis on trying to get at the same thing. 
uh, I do think that even in, in all of those relationships, whether you're the, the master or the apprentice, uh, everybody grows if you're covenanting together and trying to live it out uh, uh, together. And so I guess I'm, I'm thinking that in those groups that when you have people who aren't exactly at the same place in life, that's probably a good thing uh, where you have a, a greater variety of experiences. And, you know, if I'm if I'm working with students, I'm probably going to be the most experienced person in the in the room. So that's going to have a more apprentice uh, type feel uh, for them, uh, which I think is a good thing in churches as long as it doesn't become authoritarian. Uh, you know, as long as it's come follow with me rather than come follow me, then uh, I think that's a perfectly healthy uh, thing. Yeah. Well, and when you said that last thing, it reminded me of something else. You said, you know, come follow with me versus me. I think you have, I've heard you say before that Jesus didn't seem particularly interested in leadership. He was much more interested in followership. And our our modern culture seems very, very focused on leadership. It does. And, uh, you know, he may be interested in it. He just never talks about it. I, you know, whenever he talks about leadership, he tends to talk about it in negative terms. Uh, but, you know, if you're trying to get a kind of, of uh, theory of leadership off the ground from Jesus, you're going to have a really hard time doing it because he doesn't talk about it. He talks about discipleship. He talks about submission. He talks about following. He doesn't talk very much about about leadership, um, which, again, I think is really interesting. It's not it's not like I don't think churches need good leadership. I'd prefer them to have good leadership than bad leadership. But what, what we all need is a really strong emphasis on following well. All right. Well, this has been great, Randy. I really appreciate the time. Yeah. Um, my, uh, my pleasure. Appreciate it. It's always good to connect with you again. Thanks for joining me for another episode of The Dustcast. As always, you can find show notes at thedustcast.com. That's a great place to leave a comment about an episode or ideas for future episodes or any questions you have, you can email me at jason at dustcast.com and you can find The Dustcast on Twitter, Facebook, and most of your favorite podcast subscription services, including iTunes. If you like what you hear, leave me a rating or a review. I'd appreciate it. And of course, let me know what's on your mind and what you'd like to hear next. Go and have a blessed week.